Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every episode, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers to importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited for our guest today. I have Campbell Morrissey. He is the head brewer at Freem Family Brewers in Hood River, Oregon. Uh, now, listeners, I want you to know, if you are not familiar with this brewery, I've had a long, long admiration for their beer. Um, they opened in 2012 and definitely Belgian-inspired brews, but also a nice, like clearly Pacific Northwest heartbeat. And the Pilsner is is what gets me the most. So when I met Campbell, it took a lot of self-control not to be weird and fangirl about the brewery that I'm kind of doing now. Sorry about that. But anyways, um, so I'm very, very excited for this show. Campbell, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, don't worry, I uh, fanboy over Pilsner every day. <laughs> so if you if you wouldn't mind, maybe before we dive in talking about Freem, um, could you give the listeners a little bit of background uh, uh, about you and kind of how you got to where you are as head brewer? Certainly. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, I've been I've been with Freem for about a year and a half, so still fairly new here to this company, um, and I'm actually still. Fairly new to Pacific Northwest. I've been here just over two years. Uh, moved up here to go to graduate school at Oregon State University, uh, where I'm still actually working on a PhD in uh, barley breeding lab, working on malt quality and uh, barley breeding for malt quality and beer flavor outcomes. Uh, but I've been in the beer industry for over 11 years now. Uh, started in a small mountain town brew pub in southwestern Colorado. Uh, Works kind of throughout the state few different places, a uh, big whiskey distillery, and then moved to Northern Arizona where I was working at a brewery up there in Flagstaff. Uh, so been to a few different production realities. Um, Freem is definitely one of the coolest places I've worked, uh, both from the product mix, the quality of the beer, and just the awesome place to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also just like a stunning location. Um, in Hood yeah, River. that doesn't, that doesn't yeah. hurt either. Hood River is pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> Our brewery looks is right on the Columbia River, um, looks out over kind of Town Park, which is where a lot of folks uh, put in for kite surfing. Um, so you just see in the summer just kites everywhere. Um, it's a little bit of a zoo, but it's pretty awesome. And then, you know, living in Hood River doesn't suck either. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, so even though you only have been at uh, Frame for a little bit of time, there is a lot that you have done in that short amount of time. And that's kind of what I want to talk about um, in that the brewery itself, it, it hasn't been, you know, some massive production brewery that's, you know, nationally distributed or anything like that. This is, you know, still a, a fairly smaller establishment, you know, when you compare to that kind of production. But in uh, recently they have expanded um, and including canning. So I kind of want to dive into what that expansion look like, looks like, what kind of brewing up upgrades have been made, and kind of how that shift in production has impacted things. So let's start first uh, with expanding uh, the brewing system and, and adding a canning line. How does that 
decision-making? How does that start essentially? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of it is just the sign of the times. Um, actually as recently as 2017, we were still shopping, um, large bottling lines. Um, so, you know, still, still holding on to bottles as a, as the major small pack for our distribution. Um, Freem got into cans in 2019, um, kind of as every as everyone was starting to move that direction, you know, obviously craft beer has been in cans since about 2008 with Oscar blues. Um, but really, you know, in the last five years is when, uh, the craft industry really started seeing that like prodigious shift into cans. Um, so cans really started taking off in 2019. And then of course, 2020, uh, with the pandemic and a real shift to pretty much only small pack distribution. And so quickly going from a 75% draft company, um, you know, Pacific Northwest is pretty amazingly unique. Freem did 27,000 barrels, uh, in 2019, 75% of it was draft. Um, and so, you know, moving into cans and then going into the pandemic where everything was cans. Uh, so right now about 60% cans, um, you know, we have our four core beers in can, um, our number one seller is still Pilsner, which makes me happy every day. Uh, and then we recently started doing 16 ounce cans for our quarterly seasonals. Um, in January of this year, we put in a new filler. Uh, you know, we had been running our five head wild goose, kind of the standard, uh, craft beer, craft beer workhorse. Um, but we graduated into a rotary filler, um, and started installed in January, but that project had been going on for, you know, the bulk of 2021 to get it ready to go, uh, for 2022. And so now it's running five days a week. Um, you know, still, still a work in progress, certainly, but, uh, we've been really happy with that kind of production upgrade. And this has been, I mean, this is no small shift. I mean, just from like a brand perception, I mean, Freeman had these, uh, you still do have these really kind of elaborate looking bottles. Um, you know, you didn't have your run of the mill, um, average 12 ounce bottles. They, you know, kind of had a little bit of, uh, bend curve, uh, to them with that kind of Belgian inspiration. And then of course, I think you had your, uh, large format bottles. So to shift from these, uh, just from like a brand perception feels like a bigger leap than, than just, you know, anybody shifting into cans for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we really made a name for ourselves with the, the kind of German inspired, inspired 500 mil glass. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of classic lager glass that you would see you'd buy by the crate. Um, you know, if you were in Germany, um, unfortunately, you know, just the market has moved away from that. You know, not everyone can kind of, be that unicorn like Russian river where they can still sling 500 mil bottles of Pliny the elder. Um, so, you know, we, we followed the trends and we've actually been pretty happy with, uh, the quality of the beer coming in the cans. Um, you know, one thing that was really shocking to me when I started freeing was, you know, tasting can and glass side by side, you know, pouring it out into a, a glass, they're remarkably different beer. Um, you know, the interface, uh, between glass as well as the interface between can liner really does change the beer. Um, not necessarily positive or negative, just very different. Um, and we see beers perform differently in those, those packages. Um, and, and I don't want to say that we're not moving fully away from glass. Um, we will continue three, seven, five specialty glass for our distillers beer or barrel age series, as well as our mixed culture beers. We're actually putting in a larger bottle filler in our cascade locks facility. That's our uh, barrel and blending facility about 20 miles west of here. And so that'll actually improve the quality of those beers quite a bit. Um, so we're putting in a small eight head rotary filler down there, just dedicated to that. 
Um, so we're still committed to glass as a package, um, but we're it is still very it'll be a very niche package for us relative to cans. And as far as kind of what it looks like to shift to that production, you know, on the back end, what are some decisions or what are some uh, logistical changes that you had to make as head brewer? Um, thankfully for me, uh, the best thing about it is, you know, I deliver beer to packaging essentially, you know, I look at packaging as my number one customer. They're my only customer. Uh, but you know, in, end of 2020. So right as right before I started, um, we, our new brew house landed. So we put in a 50 barrel, uh, automated brew house from GEA and that allowed us to go from being able to brew a hundred barrels of wort in a day to 250 barrels of wort in a day. Um, and so we all of a sudden had this, you know, huge brewing capacity. However, the wild goose just wasn't able to keep up with it. So, you know, we were brewing two and a half times what the wild goose could take down in a day. And so that, not having that kind of matching uh, production kind of just obviously was a bit of a hindrance to our growth. And so having having a packaging line that kind of meets the needs of the brew house, if you will, um, has really allowed us to kind of streamline our production operations. We've actually, as we've grown um, in the last year and a half, we've actually trimmed down our production week. Um, so we're actually able to brew more over less shifts or fewer shifts. And so that's a really awesome advent in our production schedule you know we don't we only work like a cleaning shift on saturdays and don't work sundays so you know even though technically i'm not scheduled those days um you're never really off if there's production going on i got you and i i love that i love that line that you said that packaging is your one and only customer that kind of summarizes it really beautifully um so i want to shift a little bit there have been um other brewing up grades and, 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 and shifts that, that you've done since your time. Do you want to talk about those a little bit? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the biggest one has been the new brew house. Um, so Freeman was running on a, a very fairly, you know, elegant 15 barrel system, um, through 2019 amazingly did about 27,000 barrels on that thing. Uh, wow. thankfully I wasn't here for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I said, it was kind of seven days a week, um, just day in, day out. And so we put in a five vessel GA. Craftstar uh, brew house this or twenty end of twenty twenty and kind of been really tuning it in over twenty twenty one, and that's that's drastically increased our output on a day to day basis, but it's also drastically increased our efficiency. Um, you know, so we're using we only need sixty percent more malt to make three times as much beer. Um, so just really good, like, you know, cost savings, um, obviously with the 2021 barley crop, that's been huge. Um, we saw, you know, about a 30% increase in barley prices. And so having something that's a lot more efficient, you know, being kind of ahead of the game on efficiency, I suppose, um, you know, before our hand was forced due to raw material shortages and such, but we're also just really impressed with the quality that, of the work that comes off of it. Um, you know, we, we definitely have moved a lot more beers over to that system faster than we expected um you know when i started we were pretty much just brewing the four cores um and now we're brewing all of our quarterly seasonals so anything that would go into a can um is coming off that so we're quickly moving you know brewing about 90 percent of our output on that system um leaving the old system for a lot of our specialty beers um you know we're actually starting to brew all of our barrel replenishment uh in the next kind of few months and so that's all of a sudden the old brew house is going to start kind of turn it over again but uh that's 
that's definitely not the norm anymore. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and you had mentioned that there was a 30% spike in cost to barley this year. Um, is this just from general shortages and sourcing issues? or? Uh, yeah, so the 2021 barley harvest was kind of a once-in-a-century poor crop, um, although once-in-a-century now is going to be the once-a-decade or whatever, you know, between, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, the huge heat wave that hit the Pacific Northwest, the Mountain West, um, up into Canada, combined with drought, just resulted in just a horrendous uh, harvest, um, both from a yield and a quality perspective. Um, yields were through the floor, um, but also proteins were out, were up super high, so malt quality's gone down. Um, there was a lot of stuff rejected. Um, then there's also poor malt quality. Um, so to make up for that, we're getting a lot of uh, our maltsters are bringing in barley from all over the world, um, primarily Australia, some Europe. Um, I have heard some South America, kind of Argentina uh, barley coming in. And so, you know, that that was really challenging. Um, we've been really chasing malt quality specs, but also seeing increased costs that weren't budgeted for. Um, you know, thankfully, we've had some really good partners. So it hasn't been like super extreme, but it's definitely it was definitely significant. You know, typically you see that kind of like few cents a pound freight or, you know, inflation adjustment. And all of a sudden we're seeing like, you know, double digit increases. Um, And, you know, we don't see that going away. I mean, obviously the conflict in Ukraine is still going on. Um, For those who may not know, Russia is the number one producer of barley in the world. Ukraine, I think, is number in the top three. Um, And while they don't exactly produce barley for for malt for freem, that that disruption of the commodity market um, is, is, is very significant and the trickle down is real. Um, so we're going to be seeing kind of a, a real pinch on barley this year. I've already talked to some of my suppliers and talking about, you know, they're already, they're already out contracted at most of their plants. So there's going to be a lot of people who might be left out or sourcing, having to source malt from atypical places, places they never had used before. So it's going to be a real interesting time. Um, and that's just barley. Yeah. And I mean, we've, you know, it's funny, uh, this past summer, uh, for some reason, I've been on this weird barley kick with the shows, talking to different guests about the future. um, (laughs) It's the future. But talking, you know, to different guests about, you know, embracing, you know, local uh, production and local maltsters. But I mean, honestly, that has gotten more and more difficult as, you know, weather and climate have really kind of made that increasingly more challenging. So, I mean, I imagine in in all, in a great year and no problems at all, most of the sourcing that you all do is locally or at least semi-local for barley. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're pretty fortunate that, you know, when you live in the Pacific Northwest, you don't have to really try to source locally. Um, You know, our barley does actually primarily come from Canada, um, or our, let me say our malt primarily comes from Canada. Um, you know, in 2021, the bulk of our malt crop or bulk of our malt was still Canadian grown. Um, you know, uh, our Pilsner malt comes from Armstrong, BC, which is kind of, I don't know, 10 hours straight North. Um, and then a lot of the other, uh, the other malt comes from Alberta. So not, you know, super far away or, but, you know, the, 
the the big prairies of of Canada of Western Canada, um, but as they had a pretty big crop failure, it'd be interesting to see kind of where we're going to be sourcing barley from in that, or where our multipliers will be sourcing barley from. You know, I know. Again, we'll see what what kind of the supply chain looks like this year and what the harvest looks like this year. Um, but then, of course, when you move into you know hops, of we're we're right there. You know, we're two and a half hours from from Yakima, two and two hours from the Willamette Valley, and we're only four hours from the Treasure Valley in Idaho. So we're we're right in the thick of it. And I mean, you're in the thick of harvest right yeah, now. Yeah. So hop harvest started about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, and so we're we're getting ready for selection. Uh, we're doing our first selection this week um, down down the Willamette Valley. Um, then we'll go up to Yakima later in the month, and then we actually finish up back in the Willamette Valley uh, in the beginning of October. And it's also great because you know Hood River is kind of on the way from Portland to Yakima, so the brewery is just flooded with other brewers who are on their way. And it's always great to be a stopping point for a lot of folks and get to chat with your you know industry peers and show people around. And you know it's just a kind of cool reminder of why you do it. It's a really fun community to be a part of, and I love being going on the doing farm tours and meeting growers um, and processors and really kind of understanding what's going on. I mean, hops are a really weird crop, um, and you know, very subject to climate change. Um, you know, obviously, smoke taint is kind of the issue that everyone's talking about with wildfire smoke impact of hops, and so we're working on kind of being able to better identify that. But really, it's just you know. Living in the West, I'm always on NC Web, just know, trying to know where every fire is. But now I'm doing it from a hop perspective to see what might be blowing into Yakima or the Willamette Valley, uh, and you know what we might need to be aware of and kind of tuned into. Because um, we did have our first smoke taint issue this year, uh, where we had some smoke affected hops and worked with our supplier um, to mitigate that from a, a risk standpoint. But really trying to tune ourselves in, um, our sensory panel into identifying that and hopefully identifying it in selection. Mm-hmm. So we're not, you know, a couple months in and be like, oh, great. You know, we had some smoky, meaty compost tops. Yeah. And for listeners who maybe aren't familiar, can you describe the selection process and why that is so significant for so many brewers? Yeah. Um, selection's awesome. Um, so hops are picked, you know, harvested this time every year and you contract your hops. So as brewers, we say we're going to use X amount of this variety this year, and we're going to be committed to to purchase that many. Um, and so, as the hops are getting harvested, we go up and work with our suppliers, and we actually do sensory evaluations of different lots. Um, these might be from from different regions, such as you know, Mosaic from Willamette Valley versus the Yakima Valley. Could be just different farms. Um, could be different lots from within a farm. Um, hops are really subject to environmental differences, so there's quite a bit of different uh, metabolite production and sensory brewing value uh, based on where they were grown, um, and that will change year to year. And so picking the hops that not only we think are the best, but feel like they meet our brand expectations, um, even within a cultivar, um, is pretty unique. Um, and so we we go up and we do brewer's cuts, and we actually you know set, do mostly you know uh, aroma you don't want to taste them uh, to make sure that we're getting the hops that will perform best for us for the year. And so it is kind of a lot of pressure because, you know, you're, you're committing to 12 months of, of hops and, you know, you know, even our Pilsner is a pretty hoppy beer. And so we know that uh, hops drive a lot of our beer flavor. And so making sure that we pick the best ones. um, And now you compound that with this risk of smoke taint 
um, where hops can be exposed to wildfire smoke um, and start exhibiting some some fairly off character characteristics, which are not always very prevalent in the uh, fresh hops off the field. Um, they don't usually manifest until later in their life if they're not like heavily affected. Um, so that's become a real uh, a real focus point for our sensory evaluation team. No, thank you. Um, yeah, no, that whole, that whole area is, uh, fantastic this time of year because you have, um, hop selection, you have winery harvests. I feel like it's just a lot of, uh, really great industry people coming together and, uh, hopefully drinking Pilsner, you know, um, <laughs> um, so I want to completely flip around the subject a little bit. Um, at the top of the show, you described uh, that you're currently working on your PhD and you're working on a barley breeding lab. Would you be comfortable kind of talking us through a little bit of your research, um, if, that is, uh, if that's okay? Yeah, of course. So what are you working on? So I'm working in a uh, plant breeding lab based out of Oregon State University under Dr. Pat Hayes. Um, he's been the barley breeder at OSU since the late 80s. Um, and Oregon State's been really involved. Uh, it's been, you know... a barley breeding powerhouse, if you will, uh, for, for a few decades. Um, you know, Oregon is not a major barley producing state, but, you know, Oregon state is a very, you know, big agricultural research university and it's kind of held on to barley breeding and, you know, collaborating with, you know, our, our partners nationwide, um, for winter malting barley research. And seven or eight years ago, kind of the question was asked, you know, how does barley variety really contribute to beer flavor? Um, and this isn't malt type, so it's not, you know, your two-row pale ale malt versus your Pilsner malt. This is, you know, how does the variety Copeland compare to the variety Synergy in a beer? Um, and does it matter? You know, many many brewers don't really think about barley variety when they're thinking about their malt selection. Um, you know, there's some certain certain exceptions to that, kind of the heirlooms, uh, Golden Promise, Maris Otter, um, you know, where people might buy buy those based on name, but those are very kind of the exception rather than the rule. And so to really understand, you know, kind of is there a genetic basis of beer flavor associated with barley? Um, and through a series of work um, that was started uh, by some of my predecessors, um, kind of taking that on. And, you know, where I've been focusing on is kind of two-pronged, um, using some of those heirlooms to, as parents, to kind of see if we could develop what we're calling updated heirlooms. So taking taking some of the, maybe some of the positive heirloom attributes of flavor and combining them with some contemporary malt quality and agronomic outcomes. Um, you know, heirlooms are typically no longer grown because they're not exactly the best agronomic performer. Um, you know, they get outperformed by contemporary varieties or require less inputs. You know, Maris Otter is kind of an, ex is an interesting one. You know, it's still, still planted fairly widely, relatively widely in the UK. Um, you know, despite not being kind of an official recommended line by any means. Um, but it's a pretty intensive crop to, to manage, you know, it's, uh, really susceptible to, to disease. So it requires a lot of fungicide applications. So there's kind of a downside to that. Um, you know, it, it kind of seems more pastoral or bucolic to, to use your heirlooms, except when you realize that you got to spray the crap out of them to get them to grow. Um, so, you know, developing those, um, and then the second kind of angle has been, you know, a lot of the research on this barley variety to beer flavor question was done in very kind of like what we call research beers, um, you know, very much like 
bland beer that was like trying to like make sure it's like, hey, if we're going to taste them, we're going to taste them in this beer because it's so bland. It's so there's like no hop interface. There's no yeast interface. Well, you know, so we found that there were differences, but even in those beers, they were fairly kind of muted. Um, and so we kind of wanted to ask the question, like, ultimately, if people are going to care, they're going to need to see something a little more powerful. And so asking the question, you know, how does how do you start? How does that change when you start changing the malt type to maybe a more complex, flavorful malt or a more complex, flavorful beer um, and finding some interesting results? Um, you know, ultimately, we're still finding that, you know, barley variety contributes nuanced differences to beer flavor. But through that, we've kind of found some some other kind of positives, um, whereas, you know, by adjusting kind of using a kind of a bigger selection of lines, um, especially different winter barley experimental lines, you know, kind of identifying things that might be might be, have some benefits other than just malt quality, um, you know, either some agronomic improvements, um, you know, and finding that some of the malt quality specs that we've kind of used to, to select lines may be not necessarily, you know, incorrect, but maybe given too much weight. Um, and we probably have rejected lines that would have performed very strong agronomically, didn't meet those kind of very standard malt quality outcomes. But when you actually malt them to a certain spec and then brew with them, kind of knowing that you're pulling different levers, you actually create uh, acceptable beer with them. And so there's, kind of more of that kind of question of as we move into a, a new world with climate change, you know, do we need to start shifting how we think about uh, breeding outcomes so that we're, we're selecting things that are ultimately going to be the most, so, uh, the most abil- uh, have the greatest ability to adapt to a new, a changing world. Well, still maintaining the flavor that you're looking for. Correct. Okay. Still, still, still able to maintain brand recognition of your beers. So is your research conducted mostly on the agricultural side where you're actually, you know, growing these plants or, you know, cross whatever, I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, Or are you more, okay, this is the finished product and now I am brewing with these and evaluating that brew or does it kind of cover everything? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not in the field all the Mm -hmm. time, get my hands dirty with it, you know. But yeah, we, uh, we look at everything from, you know, some of these, these crosses were made, uh, in, you know, at OSU, um, you know, but this project, this, this pipeline of getting a line from like an initial cross to, you know, even enough to do some pilot brewing on is, is a few years, um, you know, and so well before my time, many of these lines were, were started, you know, many of the crosses I'm working on were made in 2014. Um, so, you know, it, it takes takes many years to get them from there to even have, you know, a few hundred pounds of seed to make, you know, pilot batch malt. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. In my mind, I've got like, I'm trying to like think back to, you know, peas and genetic grids and, you know. Yeah. Hey, Mendel. <laughs> That's fascinating and super, super uh, relevant work as far as, you know, combating kind of what we have coming up in our uh, barley future unfortunately. So that is, that is awesome. Um, well, any, any other fun, uh, exciting things on the horizon for Freem that you're able to share with us before we end our show here? Oh man. I mean, what isn't exciting? We are, you know, we're about, we're probably going to hit just shy of 40,000 barrels this year. Um, and so we're kind of constantly still, uh, trying to move, move us forward. Um, you know, but it's a really fun time to be around, you know, 
really kind of again like we've kind of put in the big pieces of equipment and so the next you know few years are going to be focused on kind of efficiency and quality um you know how do we make more beer out of the same equipment with less raw material input um and you know through that you know it's a real to me it's we're taking a very practical look at like sustainability you know it's it's great when you can say like we're sustainability focused 100 percent but to really feel like we are doing that for with like a sustain like a business sustainable focus, you know, we want to use less raw materials because they cost us a lot of money and everything costs more money. So it's like there's like actual like meat behind it, if you will. Um, it's not this kind of abstract concept that's like, hey, we just want to be sustainable so we can put it on Instagram. You know, we want to be sustainable so we can maintain a sustainable business. Because um, at the end of the day, it's like you know we still have to cut paychecks um, to over a hundred people and you know, we want to make those paychecks bigger <laughs> for each person. Um, and so that's, that's really fun. And kind of being in a small town, you know, you kind of get, can kind of see your, your impact as a business a little more clearly. Um, you know, Hood River is only 7,500 people and, you know, the gorge is probably 25,000 and we employ a hundred people. So that's pretty cool. Um, and so to kind of be able to work on projects that really ensure this, the long-term success of the company is pretty awesome. That's very awesome. Well, Campbell, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, if you are ever in the Pacific Northwest, make every effort to go to Freem Family Brewers. It is stunning. And if you see any beer on the shelf, just buy it and drink it because it is, it'll make you incredibly happy. This has been another episode of Beer Me. Please like, subscribe, give all the stars anywhere you get your podcast. Reach out if you have any questions, comments, concerns at Beer Me Radio on Instagram or beermeradio at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. We will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.